Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Zayani Bat, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Carl Harold Janssen, Co-Manager of International Biotechnology Trust. Carl, what kind of biotechnologies does International Biotechnology Trust invest in, and why should investors consider having an allocation to them? Thank you, Leonora, for inviting me, and I'll, I'll try to give a, a short answer to uh, this uh, first question. So what we invest in in the International Biotechnology Trust are mainly companies or stocks in companies that develop drugs or have drugs approved on the on the various uh, markets in the world. So uh, so this will be you know, drugs for, for serious diseases, uh, various types. We also have some med tech investments and we invest in large cap names. So we have 40% in large cap. Names more than $10 billion. We have 40% in mid-cap names between $1 and $10 billion and 25% in small-cap names. So it's kind of a diversified portfolio. And most of them are located in the, in the U.S. So with 90% U.S. investments and 10% European investments. And we also have another cut, and that is that we invest in, uh, in quoted stocks mostly. You know, 90% of the trust is invested in listed equities. And uh, 10% in, uh, is unquoted investments. The second part of the question, by the way, is, you know, why should you invest in the sector? Mm-hmm. And I think the main reason is, in my view anyway, that historically this sector has uh, performed better than the general stock market. So the biotech sector has delivered 10% per year of growth in the last 20 years, while you know, the broader stock market only has delivered 5%. So this sector outgrows the, the general stock market. So it might be good, you know, to allocate to this sector if you think the future is going to repeat itself. Okay. Now, you mentioned you have a mixture of listed and unlisted companies. So starting with the listed companies, I mean, how do you select the ones you're going to invest in? I mean, what kind of attributes do you want to see in a, a company that you're going to put in the investment trust portfolio? Yeah, that's a very, very important question and that we spend a lot of time on. And I think over the years, I've done this almost 20 years, so I've kind of... Uh, distilled down, you know, a few factors that are maybe more important uh, than than others. First of all, I think it's important to think about, you know, the balanced portfolio to see that you have you know, within the portfolio good balance of various stocks. But when you think about a particular stock, uh, we think that um, if you develop a new a new drug or you have a drug on the market, it should be a, a drug that meets a serious medical need. It shouldn't just be another pill for headaches. It should be something that is important, that does something for seriously ill people, you know, prolonging life or reducing handicap and so on. It should also be a drug that is protected from uh, you know, patent expiry and has a regu- regulatory protection so that you can earn back your money that you, you have invested. And the thirdly, I think that it's important to see that the companies have a good financing you know, so that they can develop the drugs and so on. The financial risk is very important. And uh, also uh, competition is important so that you don't, uh, you not other drugs that might compete with this particular drug, you know, that you can actually defend your market. And lastly, but not least, I would say the management of the company is very important. Maybe half the value, I don't know, half is, you know, it's an average number, but they say a big part of what I think about is who runs this company. So we have a very, very serious and close contacts with the company. So we, uh, we try to speak a lot with the management at investment conferences or when they come and visit us or we have telephone conversations uh, and so on to keep track of what, uh, what everyone is doing you know, and, and, and try to be on top of, of, uh, of the markets. 
Okay, so um, what would be examples of these kinds of companies that you've got in the portfolio? Perhaps one or just one or two. Uh, yeah, okay, we yeah. Have, oh, that could speak to the legs. Yeah. So maybe we, to yeah. be to be brief, there are. Uh, I think we have three areas where we have you know focus our investments. It's cancer companies, companies with drugs against cancer, uh, companies with drugs uh, within the so-called orphan or rare disease space so there are you know, very few patients having every disease uh, and thirdly also ne- for the n- neurological types of diseases so for oncology and cancer I would say you know the large cap names that we have is in- Insight that has uh, Jacafi and and Celgene and now acquired by Bristol Myers with Revlimid in, um, in the neurology space you know we like Neurocrine it's uh, one of the top 10 in the portfolio and uh, in the orphan space I would say Vertex is, is a good, strong name that has developed a drug for cystic fibrosis. Okay. Now, we're talking, obviously, about your existing companies, but thinking in terms of, like, you know, p- possible new additions, what areas are you finding particularly good opportunities at the moment? Yeah, I think the, the largest area with, with the opportunities is cancer and oncology for, for you know, and the main reason, I think, is that we have a, a recently had, you know, very strong development in understanding uh, cancer diseases so that we are better we can be- deliver better better drugs for 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 cancer patients and uh, cancer is also uh, um, it's like you know not one disease it's like a hundred different diseases so each one would need its own drug and that creates its a, new, a market by itself and then there could be you know resistant development and then you would have a second line treatment and third line treatment so there are many opportunities and we are currently you know understanding more and more about cancer so so we are developing um, new effective drugs okay now you also invest in a biotech fund sv fund 6 what are your reasons for doing this? And um, is investing in a fund more expensive than investing um, directly in investments? Because obviously funds charge fees. Of course. Uh, uh, the, this is you know, uh, a legacy thing that we uh, still do and we think it's very important to continue to do. So the trust has existed for 25 years. And uh, over this time, it has invested in unquoted companies too. So when I arrived as a fund manager in 2013, we had about 15% in unquoted investments. That that was stopped and instead now we do invest in a venture fund. It's much you know, more efficacious and I think it diversifies the risk. So we, we hold 5 to 15% in, in, in unquoted. That's kind of what the board has said and today we have 7 plus percent in, in this venture fund that has 21 underlying holdings. So so investors that invest in this trust would also be exposed to, to a venture fund. I think that is kind of a, a good thing. It diversifies the risk in the portfolio and um, and also gives you access to uh, to an area that, that is difficult to get an access to. And actually, it contributes to, to the return also. This uh, venture fund has uh, already, you know, is at one3 X uh, return, you know, since we started two and a half years ago. So that's why I think is it is an answer. Yeah. So what does the fund invest in? Oh, the fund invests in uh, today. I th- we have, uh, if my memory doesn't fool me here, twenty one investments, and they are spread in three areas. So one area is biotech, so meaning kind of early stage drug development companies mostly, and the second area is the, what we call service or private equity. It would be more companies that service in the healthcare 
space. They usually have a you know quicker to revenues and earnings and a quicker you know turnover time in the fund. And the third area is medicinal technology, where we have a few uh, investments too. Okay, and, and who runs the fund? Um, the fund is run by SV Health uh, Investors, the, the so, organization so that. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so about is it the yourself fi- who runs the no, fund? No, it's or? not. It's uh, this is the venture part. So mm-hmm. we're completely separate. I, in the sense of running the funds, so I'm only run the investment mm-hmm. trust. And uh, on fees, that you asked the question about yeah. fees, there is no like a double layering of fees. Okay. The fee for the International Biotechnology Trust is zero point nine percent. Of, uh, of the net asset value and then we have an incentive fee uh, on top of that for the quoted uh, part of the portfolio. Okay. Actually, um, talking of the um, performance fee, um, how does this work? Um, and you know, how can you justify having a performance fee at a time when many investment trusts are actually scrapping their performance fees? Yeah, we have a performance fee on uh, the quoted side of the portfolio. That's ninety uh, percent of uh, of the portfolio, and that that fee works in the way that uh, it is ten percent of the relative outperformance above the pound sterling adjusted Nasdaq Biotech Index. So that's compared to index plus zero point five percent hurdle, and the fee on the unquoted pool remain, remains twenty percent of net realized gains, taking into account uh, any unrealized losses, uh, but not unrealized gains. So, so we have. Have these two two um, different sets of uh, incentive fees, but that's not on the on the fund. So that's only kind of legacy uh, unquoted holdings. And I, and uh, the, your question about other um, scrapping, I don't know. I, I haven't seen too many others scrapping uh, their fees. Uh, uh, on on the contrary, we have seen you know investors come into our fund, and uh, we had a we used to have a discount. Now we actually have a premium issue new shares. So someone likes uh, the trust, I think. You mentioned that the fund used to invest um, directly in quoted. Now you're very much focused um, this area on SV Fund 6. But do you have any um, direct investments still in unquoted investments? Yes. So when we stopped investing in the unquoted, the, the direct investments uh, um, uh, a few years ago, then uh, then we uh, we kind of decided that we need to continue to support the various companies we already invested in. So you could consider that a runoff portfolio, where uh, where we have uh, where we now have uh, eight direct investments as end of March, uh, constituting two point four percent of the trust, and then we also have five investments that have already been exited in the unquoted side, but where we have contingent milestones, meaning that sometimes in the future there might be a sales milestone or something, and that constitutes 2.6% of the trust. But those two, 2.4 and 2.6, about 5%, are coming down each year, you know, and a few years from now will be zero, and instead we'll have just one venture fund or maybe another venture fund in the future in order to... uh, to diversify out the trust into into uh, uh, also the unquoted area. So in total, we have uh, seventy eight holdings. You know, we have uh, sixty four quoted stocks at the end of March. We have one fund investment with twenty two underlying investments and thirteen direct unquoted. So it's pretty much a diversified portfolio. 
Okay, now you mentioned earlier um, your assets are very focused on North America and according to your March uh, fact sheet, that was 87% invested in that area. I think the issue is the US, um, where I presume most of these are, um, is believed to be a really expensive market. So doesn't this mean the trust holdings are A, expensive and B, maybe at risk of a, a de-rating? Uh, yeah, that's a good good question. <laughs> Thank you. Now, uh, uh, in general, you know, maybe one could consider you know the U.S. market uh, expensive, but th- this sector, the healthcare sector, the biotech sector, is actually not very expensive uh, if you look at that subsector compared to the broader market. For reasons that are related to you know the the, the political uh, debate in the U.S. regarding high drug prices and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the specific quest, uh, answer to to your question related to the biotech sector. But there are also like more broader. Answers. I don't know if you recently saw uh, Warren Buffett uh, say that you know the U.S. market isn't actually that expensive. It's actually very cheap because the interest rates are so low, and and they're probably going to stay low for a long time. So I don't know. You know, there are various views about you know the the price of the market. You know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I suppose another issue with so much invested in the U.S. I mean, what effect do currency fluctuation have on um, international biotechnology trusts' returns? Oh, yeah, that's very uh, kind of uh, important. I, I will answer this, you know, with t- two answers. One is that we don't hedge the currency, so so an investor in the trust would be exposed to the to the currency of the underlying investment. So, eighty-seven percent is U.S. dollars, right? And uh, then the rest is European currencies, euros, and and, and others. Um, so so that's one thing to consider. But the second thing is that you actually invested in an international industry. So even if you know you have a US investment in a company, that company like Vertex, for example, that sells a drug for cystic fibrosis, it sells that drug in the whole world. So so it will be exposed to to sales in in euro, in yen, and in dollars and and it really, you know, from that point of view it really doesn't matter where where it's listed if if it is a drug with global sales. Okay. So what are the main risks to your investments at present? Yeah, that's that's a very very uh, important question regarding risk. We, cons- we we spend a lot of time on risk and we try to to reduce the risk as, as much as possible, you know, the there are, you know, market risks. Uh, we we can't do very much about that. But the specific risk within this sector, we we can really think about. And uh, uh, we run a pretty, um, you know, traditional model where we think diversification is good. So, if you have a lot of investments rather than you know few investments, then you reduce the company specific risk. And and uh, so we I would describe we have quite a few holdings, uh, and we have a no holding is very big. So in that spe- in that way, we can reduce the risk of uh, of having one company um, or one investment being you know very big, and then something happens. You, you, you there could be a big move in the portfolio. Also, we, we uh, SV Health investors are only doing healthcare investments, so we don't do anything else. And we're specialists in healthcare. We have seventy people working with the investments in healthcare, all coming from the industry with a medical background or industrial background. So, if you know what you're investing in, you reduce the risk of doing something wrong. You know 
what you invest in. So kind of the board that decided that SV Health Investors should manage this trust decided that it's good that somebody that knows about healthcare uh, does this. And then within the, you know, the various companies, there is also company-specific risk in the sense that something can go wrong. A clinical trial can fail or you know, some, something can go wrong. You can lose a lot of money. I don't know if you remember uh, AstraZeneca two years ago had this mystic trial that failed in the summer and then stock was down 10%. Now, that was a big company. A small company can have much bigger moves. So what we do in that respect to reduce that risk is to not to invest in these companies at the time when they have this exposure to a clinical trial. So let's say uh, no, a year from now, company A would have a phase three results from a very important trial then uh, we, we would not be invested one year from now in that stock. But right now we could invest, you know, for the next nine months. It's relatively unrisky. So we follow the news of the, every company, the one or two major value drivers, to see when in time is there a risk, and then we kind of trade out of the names into that risk. So that's a couple of uh, factors that we, we think about. Uh, but it is a sector with a higher beta than the general stock market so with beta it means it has a higher volatility so when the stock market is you know is down usually biotech is down a little bit more stock market is up up a little bit more so that is also a risk that you have to consider as an investor i think Okay. Now, you invest in a growth-orientated sector, but in 2016, um, amended the trust policy so you could pay dividends from capital reserves equivalent to 4% of your net asset value at the end of a preceding financial year. Why did you decide to do this? That's a very good question, very interesting question. Now, to start with, I actually was negative to doing that, but but then our investors wanted us to do it, and and it's kind of the way also I think the market has evolved that some uh, some growth uh, trusts actually pay a dividend. So we we decided in sixteen to to pay as you said four percent of net asset value, and uh, and uh, immediately I found out that that there were new investors that were interested. You know, usually we would only have growth investors, meaning investors that don't think about having an income. Now suddenly income investors would be very interested like you know endowment funds or you know people that want to have a, a an income like a dividend and and we had broadened out the, the investor base actually and some of these investors tell me that they're happy that they can invest in this sect, growth sector now with with a dividend so the dividend i think is relative you know it was considered sustainable in the sense that it was paid out of, of capital gains as you mentioned and going forward into the future you know you with with Thinking about history, biotech sector has grown by 10% per year, I mentioned in the beginning of the interview. Now, if that would repeat itself in the future, and um, then you pay 4% in dividend, you still have 6% capital gains. So I think the model gives an investor the opportunity to have both capital gains and a dividend, and and, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing. Okay, but doesn't it force you to sell holdings that perhaps could have gone on to deliver strong growth? And I mean, has it impaired the growth returns of a trust? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question, and it uh, addresses you know how do we actually manage the trust? How active are we? I mean, your question kind of implies that you buy a stock and keep it forever and don't do very much. Now, that is actually not the case. We uh, the turnover of the trust is is you know more than a hundred percent per year. So we actually buy and sell a lot of these stocks and. Uh, we also can gear the trust up to um, 15%. Uh, we have a borrowing facility of 15%, and uh, 
prospectus says that we can borrow up to 30%. So, uh, so anyway, on a, on a given day, you know, if you want to pay a dividend, there is uh, this um, gearing facility that you could use, or, or we could just sell a few shares in a, in a company that we maybe want to sell out for, uh, for reasons of the binary event risk. Or they all could also be companies that have been acquired. You know, every year there are M&A transactions in this sector where especially the mid-caps are acquired by by large caps. You know, you had Glaxo buying Tessero in the fall and, and we own Tessero, so that would generate cash also. So there is always a turnover in the trust and a 4% dividend that's paid twice a year as 2% in January and 2% in August doesn't create any problem of the sort that you mentioned in your question. Okay. Now, you mentioned the trust had recently, um, was recently trading, or it is, it is trading at a slight premium, but obviously it used to trade uh, at, at times quite a wide discount. Is the move to a premium because of the change um, in the income policy? Uh, well, good, you spotted that. Uh, yes, uh, uh, I, I started to be a fund manager here. I'm the lead fund manager. I started in September 13. So, so when we uh, decided to do this income um, policy in September 16, I, that we, we had I had as a new manager generated three year performance and three years kind of you know the holy grail of what you need to do before you, you, anyone believes that you can do a good thing, and uh, and that was good. We have outperformed versus our benchmark, and then we had uh, also at the same time this. Uh, dividend policy introduced and we had some changes on the unquoted side doing a venture fund so i think all these things together made the trust you know more more interesting and uh, for an investor maybe maybe you know the the combination of income and good performance was was uh, uh, was a good mix there at that time and since then discount has narrowed yes Okay, thank you, Carl. A really interesting update on International Biotechnology Trust and the prospects for biotechnology shares. Thank you very much, Lenora. Retirees and investors who draw regular income from their investments often focus on UK equity income. But if too much of your income comes from a small number of holdings, you could be at risk in a fall in it if one of the holdings fails to pay dividends. Zayani, you've been looking at this. What can investors do to mitigate this risk? Hi, Leonora. So, yeah, one thing that investors can do is invest in equity income funds outside the UK. And Asian equity income funds are a particularly good solution. Um, There are several reasons for this. Firstly, the region's predominantly young population is getting richer. Uh, Economies that used to be dominated by commodities and export manufacturing are now diversifying. And finally, increasing numbers of Asian companies are now paying dividends and have their Resource, have the resources to support the wider growth. Okay, so how can investors get access to these Asian companies? Um, so one good way to access such companies is through the Guinness Asian Equity Income Fund. The fund is managed by Edmund Harris and Mark Hammonds and has been since it started in 2013. The fund typically invests in about 30 to 40 companies and half of its assets are in financial or IT companies. The managers have a very strict one-in-one-out policy when they're picking new funds, so any new ones have to be better than existing ones. But they also invest in Singapore and Australia. Now you said they've got quite a strict investment policy, so um, you know how, how do we go about choosing the companies? So the managers screen for companies that fulfil three criteria. The first is that they must generate capital growth that is above the cost of capital. Um, the second is that 
they must be able to sustainably grow their dividends and not just have a high dividend yield. Um, and the final is that they must have a proven track record of being able to weather different economic environments over time. So a good example of a company that they invest in is China Lilang, which is a fashion retailer, um, and it's also their largest holding. Okay. And um, has their approach worked well? Yeah, uh, this approach has worked really well for them, actually. They have an attractive yield of nearly 4%. In most years, the fund has outperformed its benchmark. Uh, It's also beaten the MSCI AC Asian Pacific X Japan Index and the Investment Association Asia Pacific X Japan Sector Average over one, three and five years. Okay. Now, I mean, this all sounds really good, but um, there's always two sides, aren't there? So, um, you know, are there any downsides or risks to investing in Asian equity income? Yeah, the main one is that the fund can be quite volatile because it invests in emerging market companies. The fund's investments could also be at risk if there's a slowdown in China in the Chinese economy um, as it changes from export-led to more consumer-led. Um, and I, obviously, as it's an equity income fund, there's the risk of the company not being able to pay its dividends. Thank you, Zayani. Some really useful points. That brings us to the end of today's show. But see this week's issue of the website for Zayani's full report on Guinness Asian Equity Income Fund and more on healthcare and biotech funds and investing for income. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.